I mean, I've always been a great believer in infinite scroll, just for to load, to load, to load, to load, to load, to load, etc. Maybe that's the next like Harry Potter film. It's like Harry Potter and infinite scroll. <laughs> Welcome to Texas, the show that provides the information you need to know so that technology can help your business to be more successful. I'm joined by David Dwyer from Inspire today. And David, we've been good friends for quite a long time and I know a lot about you, but I'm hoping I'm going to learn something else that I didn't know about you today or about your business and what you do. So thanks for taking the time out to join me. Maybe uh, tell people listening a bit about yourself, a bit about your business, kind of what you guys do. And also, I think more importantly, what you don't do, because quite often, especially in tech world, there's a lot of preconceived ideas about you know, IT companies like us do and what web development businesses do as well. So maybe explain a bit about your business. First of all, thanks very much for inviting me along, Mark. You eventually got your invite. This is my second involvement in a podcast. So not bad for 14 years. You're a pro. Well, we've been around since 2008. We have been looking after clients from many different sectors of the economy. So it might be from the private sector. It might be from the public sector, it might be from the third sector, but it also might be what we would maybe call individual clients who've got a particular vision that they want someone to come and kind of be supportive on to help them get off the ground. So that might not necessarily be a tech startup. It might just be something completely out there that no one's really thought of. And we've done a few of those, which have been really cool to be involved with. Over the years, we have kind of added to the team. So we are now up to, well, as of next week, 26 staff. And we're looking to try and take on another eight or nine. But I'm really fussy about who we bring in because of the standards that I hold us to and that I expect our clients to hold us to as well. We see ourselves as not just being a, and I know how that sounds, we don't see ourselves as a subservient relationship supplier. We see ourselves as a strategic partner for our clients. Why? Because we want to take some ownership of the tasks that we are assigned and also provide some of the support in terms of the guidance of that business over the next few years, uh, particularly in the online world. The other thing that we do is we do an awful lot in terms of learning. So from a business perspective, we're in a world where there is, it's like we're in a constant state of change. If you look at the website and, or even did you see a logo and we've got the flame, the flame kind of represents the phoenix rising from the ashes. And that kind of goes along with the thought that in the web world, nothing remains constant and we're constantly having to look at a state of rebirth, a reinvention, a refresh. And it's about coming up with new ideas and new approaches and being open to change. And that can bring its own pressures, but it's the world that we choose and we love to work in because in dealing with the range of clients, I think we're in 137 different sectors and dealing with the clients that we deal with they look to us to be their kind of um, guide and their kind of facilitator of change to kind of help them go to the next level. Okay. Thanks for that, David. It's a great intro to the business. You're probably familiar with Marcus Sheridan. You know, they ask, you answer. If you've not read it yet, then read it. In fact, actually, my daughter Chloe's actually stole my copy and she's actually reading it. I find it really fascinating. Is this Chloe who... Your listeners might not know has already done our cyber accreditation exams. Yeah, she done the Fortinet accredited system. I can't even remember what it's called now. And what age was she when she did that? Was she eleven or twelve? She was eleven. <laughs> it just shows you, Mark. It just shows you that it doesn't matter what age you are when you start these things. No, exactly. And you can't ever be too young to start learning stuff. She just enjoys like learning out and finding out and how things work and new things. And I guess. The curiosity that kids have helps to enable them to learn stuff. But the thing that I was going to say, because I follow Marcus Sheridan on LinkedIn. Bob, how salesman. If I said to you, is trust going to be fundamental to your business and your success in 10 years, 20 years, what would you say? Definitely, he says. I agree with you, Bob. If I said to you, is Facebook going to be essential to your business in 20 years? What would you say? He said, probably, which it may be. My answer would be, I hope not, because hopefully we have evolved as a human race by that point. <laughs> Can I get an amen? 
mentioned this just the other day, which is that you'll know this. If you go to the homepage of most people's websites, they talk about their business and what they do. And rather than what they do for the person that's actually reading it, you've probably reviewed hundreds of websites in your life and or thousands probably. And the amount of websites that you see says, and we started in 1909 and, you know, business has been in the family for five generations and it's like, no one really cares because the person coming to your website already has questions in their head. And this really falls into what Marcus Sheridan talks about and in his books we're all about. It's like, they've already got questions which are, how many staff do you have? How big are you? Can you support us? You know, if I'm talking about IT support here or how much do you charge? How long does it take? What's the process to come on board? They've already got all these questions and they're just looking for answers. Yeah, they might go to your About Us page and you probably know and I know from our website that your About Us page is quite a highly visited page, usually because people will go to see a bit of due diligence. You know, that's they're getting to that point where they go, right, okay, I see what you do. I think you can help me. I want to find out now a little bit about the people. Like we have this in our sales process, the due diligence stage, which is, well, how long have you been around? Because I want to know that you're a robust business. You've not just started up five minutes ago. How many staff do you have? What's your staff qualifications? What insurances and guarantees and anything you have in place to know that, you know, you're a safe bet. I spend my money with you. You're going to be around in three years, right? But first of all, that homepage that people hit has to kind of talk to that person and start to address the questions that they have. Now, I think that our website's pretty good. But even after reading that from Marcus Sheridan the other day on LinkedIn, I thought, right, I'm going to quick read through our website and make sure it does actually talk about the person and talk to them. And it's not just about us and... I made some changes. I'll be honest, I made some changes off the back of that. And I know, and I've said for years, websites are never finished. And you probably say this to customers as well. It's an ongoing thing all the time. You covered a lot of different points there. So number one, people don't automatically go to a homepage. People go to a page that Google returns as relevant to their query and their phrase. Okay, that's number one. Number two is the reason lots of people's websites get traffic for about... Bearing in mind the first point I made is because the about page tends to have more information on it. And because it has more information on it, Google then sees it as more relevant and will likely return it ahead of other pages on the website that should have been perhaps more relevant. The home page typically should be, yes, a landing page, but also an executive summary of who they are, what they do. And I use that who they are first because it goes does goes to the point you were making. Who they are, what they do, and what value they can add. But coming back around to the approach that we take, we ask a different question and we say, what's the purpose of having an online presence? Right? And some people will struggle with that. We will also say to them, what does a great online presence deliver you? Not what does it look like, not what the look and the feel and the aesthetics are, but what does it deliver? Then we'll ask them a question and we'll do a mind map and we'll go down. Who do you expect to visit the website? And that will then inevitably mean they'll say, we want customers. So we'll say, well, are they current or potential? Okay, answer that. Then it'll be, are they one-off or are they recurring? Are they public sector, private sector, domestic, commercial, etc.? Then you then start to build a profile. But who else do you expect to visit the website? Well, you'll expect competitors to visit your website. So you should always look at it as a a lens. So if you look at your website through the lens of a competitor, what are you telling them? So in that case, many people will then choose maybe not to put pricing on the website. But if you think about dental practices, it's the second most visited page on a dental practice website's price page, even if it says prices for all. It's giving them some information. And if that people are looking for things, then you need to be in a position to be kind of confident and capable enough that if you share it, then it's not going to have a negative impact on your commercial business. But the next one is... I'm just going to jump in. The, the pricing one is a really interesting one, actually. And again, and they ask you answer. I think it's one of the most probably common questions that people have. And there's that whole thing of saying, well, I don't know, if I go to cheapwatches.com, right? I'm just making that up. I don't know if that's a website. It probably is. (laughs) If it's not, get it registered. But cheapwatches.com, I bet it's a website that sells watches and I bet they've got the prices of all the watches on it and they've got an online shop where I can buy a watch. 
But if I go to Rolex.com, they probably don't have much pricing information on their website because it's a different buyer. Or they might have. No, they do. They do definitely show Who do Rolex. But again, well, I guess it's probably no surprise because if they're smart enough, they know that they don't want people coming to buy a watch that have only got a budget of a thousand pounds, do they? Like they want people that come to their website or their stores that can afford to buy their products. Just like for us, like our pricing and our minimum commitment has been on our homepage for quite a while now. And I'm quite upfront about it. Mark, see if everybody on the planet wanted me to help them build a website. I just couldn't physically cope. We don't want to be all things to all people because we just can't, we can't service it. And to be honest, we're at a point now whereby you have to be clear with what your values are. And we want to work with people that are aligned with our values. So it's honesty, integrity, trust, respect, fairness. I thought you were going to maybe make a different point because this is one that we have, we, you and I have both discussed in the past and it's value. So how can you associate price with value? And if you build a website for someone and you spend three hours helping do, I mean, I did a piece of consultancy work for a major garage chain and it was right. So what recommendations can you give us based on what you've seen? And I said, well, we ask you a few questions. So we went through the questions and one of the questions was, what do you make your most money on? What's the most important thing on the website? And it was MOTs, right? Okay. So next director, what's the most important thing? MOTs. That's the next one. It's in TV general listening. The most important thing on the website is MOTs. I said, well, how do I book an MOT in a website? He said, well, you've got to go to the menu and then you've got to do the drop down. Then you've got to find the garage. Then you've then got to go to the garage page. Then you've got to then scroll down. You've then got to pick the services that are available in that garage. Then you've then got to then click book an MOT. And then it takes me to another page. And then I book the MOT. Why can't you just put a form on the home page? Can you do that? Of course you can do that. What's that going to take and for wise? Well, it's a, bit, it's a bit two hours work or something. Right? Now, that's about understanding what does the user want to be able to do. Now, that, I mean, this is years ago now, but that particular homepage had 26 competing marketing messages and they didn't go through one of the tools that we use. So you and I have spoken in the past, Mark, about Blue Ocean Strategy, okay? And the process, that kind of, the things that kind of come from that about assessing strategy and how I've taken that and it's kind of ERRC. And so it's eliminate, reduce, raise, and create. And I couldn't remember ERRC at the time. So I just thought, right, okay, Eric, right? So we're going to Eric the site, right? So, and it's eliminate, reduce, improve, and create. And when we look at a website and we say, right, okay, so from the objective that you have for this particular page, what is its purpose? If the purpose of it is this, what types of user do we want to visit this page? This type of user. Right. So what information are we going to be able to put on there to facilitate the response we need? Straightforward, right? You don't get that with off-the-shelf-based websites because each business's interpretation of their ideal customer is different or their ideal user for that page is different. Okay, so you need to have a contact form. Right, okay, so you're going to ask those questions, etc. So coming back to it, it's about what can I eliminate on the page that doesn't contribute to the value of the purpose of that page and doesn't lead the user to make, take that action I wish them to do. Then it's about what well, can I reduce? Well, do I need to make that graphic as big as that? Do I need to have as much content on that? Well, maybe I do, but I could maybe disguise it with nifty front end development to make it as an expanding collapse, like a concertina. And then it's about what can I improve, right? So maybe the message isn't quite as on message and nailed based on that user's need as it could be. And then finally, I've got the space to maybe just create something or add something that's going to add that bit extra value. When you go back to it, it's about understanding not just it's the homepage, which is, oh, we were formed and such and such and such and such. I mean, if you look at our website, I'm embarrassed by it, right? But I'm embarrassed by it because it's 11 years old, right? Now, it looks all right for 11 years old, but that website gets about, 12 million of a traffic a year, okay? And because we've been busy and because we've been successful, it's like cobbler's bairns, you go on with looking after your client, okay? But what you've got on your own behalf to demonstrate what you're doing needs to be revisited. Of course it does. And it is something that we've got and and progress within the business. But our priority is looking after our clients. 
that's what our priority is because not only do they pay our wages, but they've trusted us and we respect them and we want to be fair to them. And for me, fairness is defined as engagement, expectation management and explanation. So we want to be able to be fair with them, but we also have to be fair to yourself and have it as another task and kind of revisit it. Well, and that's where we can recognise that having good partners within your kind of ecosphere is critical. So there'll be things that I give advice to our clients that we don't have on our website, not because I've only just thought of it, but because I've just not had the capacity to kind of get on with it. I mean, I mentioned earlier, we're looking for another eight or nine roles to join the team. And that's because the demand is there and the opportunity is there. And rather than revisiting where we are as a brand, as, as, as an online presence, we'd rather focus on what our clients brand and what their online presence looks like. Here ends this sermon. <laughs> the Texas 10. You're probably going to be the last person to ask these questions to come. We're going to change them up after this because I've asked them to a few people now and I like to just kind of keep it fresh. So let's run through the Texas 10 with Dwyer from Inspire. So David, if you had a hundred million pounds to spend, what would you spend it on? Good question. I think the first thing I would do is make sure that our future was secure and that there was going to be an ongoing income stream. And then we would probably look at saying, right, okay, well, what can we afford based on that income stream rather than just so that I'm never going to be in a position that I squandered it and have nothing left. And it's a race to the bottom to spend it on. Once I've understood that, I'll then start to think about those around me and how can I be supportive of them? What do I do with the begging letters? Well, I'll just keep sending them. In terms of the actual money, though, what would I really like to do? I'd really like to have a greater involvement, some of my passions. So I'd like to explore some of those and be some of that. Probably, uh, you'd probably be buying a piano after your revelation that you're taking piano lessons. Well, well it's, it's good quite well. It's good quite well. I'm really enjoying it. I'm actually much better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be hopeless and it was just going to be a fad. But I'm actually really enjoying it. Still going up and down the, the keys, but no, it's good. But to go back to what you were saying there, I would like to explore my passions, but I would also like to explore areas that maybe I'm not sure if I've got an interest in or not. So things like, probably it'll buy me an opportunity to kind of explore some of those interests, but also the time. So it would create the time for me to maybe spend with family a bit more. Like most people, I'm busy. But it's really incumbent upon ourselves to make sure that we're the masters of our own destiny. So things like maybe take an interest in the football club that we both have an affiliation with and an interest with. Things like maybe getting a yacht. That would be nice. Yeah, You can afford to try things and find out you don't like them, knowing that money's not really an issue, right? I was going to say, like, right now, you know, it's like to go and buy a yacht now and realise that you don't actually like boats would be... A huge problem, right? But if a hundred million, aye, you could take aye, that risk. Aye, aye. So it's to go and explore things like that. Yeah, to go and explore things like that. To go and maybe get a new a new house, right? But it's not just to get the house for the sake of it. I would want it to be like I've read a few years ago that Bill Gates was one of the first people to have a fully automated house, and I would be interested to see how that actually works. So from clapping my hands to putting the lights on and off um, to using Alexa in the house. But I mean, these are just fantasy, kind of exploring things. One of the things that we definitely not do is give up work. Really? That might be a surprise, but no, I love what I do. I've really, I find myself really, really fortunate that when I started this business when I was 36, I had been through a career with Scottish Newcastle and Aviva and had been really lucky that I had kind of taken the opportunities and or been given the opportunities to go and learn. And I don't want to be in a position that much as money then leads to going and kind of exploring your passions. I wouldn't want to give up the passions I've already got. I mean, somebody said to me once, what's the best website you've ever done? And I said, well, how do you pick for your children? Because there's a piece of your soul in every single piece of work that you do. And it's one of the things sometimes that frustrates me when people say, oh, I hate my work, oh, I hate my work. And I was like, why do you hate it? Surely you should be in a place whereby you love it because you've only got one life and none of us know when our time's going to be up. So somebody said to me once, as soon as you're born, you start dying. And I know it sounds quite depressing, but it's true. I said, we've all got an expiry yeah. date. We just don't know okay. when it is. 
Well, I mean, you can maybe already answered question two, actually, in that, which is what's one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And maybe is it to love what you do, to enjoy work and make sure you find something that you have a passion for? From a business perspective, it's businesses don't grow of their own accord. They grow when people grow. So yes, you can increase your turnover by just increasing your prices, right? But you truly grow when your people grow. And you need to sow the seeds and help them nurture them and develop them and kind of be supportive and be challenging as well. But in terms of what, what have I learned, I, th- I think the main thing would be to try and be yourself. Don't be false and surround yourself with people who will challenge you. Not critically, but who will challenge you and be supportive of you. If I was to look back in my career, one of the things I would have tried to have sought out much, much sooner would have been the mentor relationships I have. I mean, I've got three mentors, as well as having friends and colleagues who will kind of give me advice and I'll, I'll seek out their opinion. But I've got three regular mentors and that's been incredible. I mean, I remember going to a entrepreneurial exchange event and the chap was talking about being a thief of great ideas and he said, you know, it's one thing learning from your mistakes. He said, it's another thing entirely learning from other people's mistakes. I found that really quite profound. Yeah. Do you think people actually really learn from other people's mistakes though? Because I've thought about this before and the thing is, it's like your kids. So like, if you see your kids about to trip up or do something, right, and you say, don't do that because you might trip and hurt yourself. Until they experience the pain of actually hitting the concrete and grazing their knee, they don't truly learn from the mistake. And I think that goes in business as well. I mean, I think I apply that to obviously, you know, to talk about what we do just for a minute. Like if you think about like cybersecurity, for example, like we should, we can talk about examples of how other businesses have been affected by cybercrime and lost thousands of pounds, but no one else actually truly makes the step to protect themselves until it's too late. Normally, you know, until something bad's happened, that's when people would do things. So people aren't very good. Maybe you are, David, but generally I don't think people are very good at learning from other people's mistakes. It's a constant battle. I mean, much as I'm sharing with you things that I've learned from the past, none of us are perfect. I mean, I would like to be omniscient and know everything that there is to know. But was it the Donald Rumsfeld quote of, there's things I know I know, and there's things I know I don't know, and there's things I don't know that I don't know, right? I can't even um, what you just said but, there. <laughs> we need to write that but, one down in the show notes. That's something I can't even remember, <laughs> but it sounded good. Right, so there's things I know that I know, there's things I know that I don't know, and there's things I don't know that I don't know, okay? So to take it in a slightly different slant, I'm a great believer in honourable failure, versus dishonourable failure. So honourable failure is about, and you probably know this, Mark, but it's about learning from something that you tried and didn't work. Not that it went wrong, but it just didn't work or it wasn't as optimal or it wasn't as um, successful as you would like it to have been. But what did you learn from it, right? So what would you have done differently? Would you have completely abandoned it or would you have just put it down to experience and tried something slightly different? Whereas dishonourable failure is about, ah, it didn't work, so I'm not going to bother again, right? I'm not going to take any learning from that. So, for example, putting tenders together. You don't want someone in a role putting tenders together who is familiar with dishonourable failure and demonstrates it because you'll never win any tenders because they don't learn from their previous submissions and they don't ask for feedback and they don't do da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, well, we're going to... Um going to get slightly less serious David in the next few questions does pineapple belong on pizza no see then we're, we're friends and I knew this I would have found this out sooner actually it's definitely a, that's a friendship breaking thing right I just don't understand the pineapple on a pizza thing you know hot fruit who has hot fruit would you put a strawberry on a pizza no would you put a peach on a pizza god forbid would you put an apple on a pizza no when you put any fruit on a pizza why would you put pineapple on a pizza? Well, I know, but I, th- I think it's the ham and pineapple. Like people have ham, like people have gammon steaks with pineapple on it. Eh? And I think that's where it came from. But it should stay like that. Like shouldn't have moved, am- amalgamated into being a pizza. That's what happens when you live in Hawaii though, in the, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, miles from nowhere. I mean. Well, there's the next question is, and I don't know the answer is, why is it called a Hawaiian? What's Hawaiian about? 
ham and pineapple. Pineapples? Yeah, but is ham and pineapple a Hawaiian thing? I don't know. Anyway, you'd see what I said. Look, you're making this question far deeper than what it should have been. <laughs> anyway, the next one is, what's your walkout song? Walking out on stage, what's your theme music? Oh, that's, that's a tough one, Mark. Mark. problem I've got is I've got quite an eclectic taste in music. My wife uses a different word um, to describe my taste in music. I call it eclectic. I'll tell you mine. Okay. Mine's One Vision by Queen. Right, okay. Just because the way it builds up, the, like, the keyboard synths and then the guitar you know, comes in, it's really powerful. And that's like bursting out on the stage. It's just got that build up and then the, the power. That's mine. I'll give you one, right? The answer to that will probably vary depending on the mood I'm in and where I am. But probably never enough by Lauren Allred. It's in The Greatest Showman. To be honest though, music is something that does change in terms of your mood. So yeah, I suppose it depends on what you're walking out to. If you're walking out in a boxing ring, what? Uh, compared to walking out on stage to give a talk at a business conference, might be two different theme musics, right? You know what, right? Happy. 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 The, 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 the Adam Williams. Hi. Yeah, yeah. That's quite, that's quite a good that's song. It's yeah. got a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Gets people in a good mood. Yeah. Gets everybody else. See, that's, that's typical me thinking of others, not myself. Well, that is something I could agree as a quality about you, David. <laughs> sure if you could have dinner with three people either dead or alive who would you choose you don't have to give reasons you just have to name them okay so these are going to be quite unusual I wouldn't expect anything less David right okay so the first one right would be Cain 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 yeah as in Cain and Abel yes why not Abel well he's no I want to know what the motivation was from Cain I know he was jealous but I want to I want to ask him more questions because I, okay. I read a, or not read, but I listened to a podcast from a rabbi and I thought it was really, really interesting. And he was talking about the motive, the, the layers, as a multi-layered aspect to that crime and the murder. Because he talked about Cain was growing crops and Abel was giving growing livestock. So when God asked for a sacrifice, Abel sacrificed one of his livestock the best of his livestock and Cain gave the best of his crop but the point was that what was the greater sacrifice now the challenge for me then thinks well that's a bit unfair on Cain because Cain can only give what he's got so it's quite a profound one so that's the first one the next one would be Judas Iscariot right that would be a really interesting conversation and Betty Old a very sad loss in Scottish football this week with the passing of Celtic great Bertie Auld at the age of 83. John, you knew him particularly well. A Lisbon Lion, a real Celtic great. How will he be remembered? Oh, as a wonderful player, as a very, very infectious man. Well, I know who he is. Yeah. Most people who are listening will probably know who he is as well. So, um, no, that'd be good. If, and he'd be great entertainment as well. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It would lighten the mood immediately. Yes. It would call out Judas immediately. <laughs> right? It wouldn't hold back. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a good one, actually. And you've named three people that no one else has actually named, so that's good. In fact, I don't think I've any, had any duplicates for that question. So question six is, if you had any superhero power, what would it be? To know what other people think. One of the things I'm very aware of is I'm very poor at reading people. So as a consequence over my life, I've just had to be as transparent and as upfront and heart and wearing my heart on the sleeve as I possibly can. And to the extent whereby it's a bit like a Marmite character, but I think if I was to have any kind of superpower, it would be to know what other people are thinking. I'm a great believer in feedback and constructive feedback and even more so very challenging and constructive feedback because much as I see my team and those around me on a journey and 
what that journey looks like and where they are in their career and what's in front of them. And the journey might go up a hill and down a hill and round a corner and through a swamp and etc. I'm also in that journey. And you can only kind of progress in that journey when people are around you are supportive. I think of the phrase that say that you become the average of the, the people that you surround yourself with. And that kind of goes to the journey that the journey becomes much easier when the people around you are helping each other. Yeah. You can't unhear it. That would be the thing for me, like to know what someone thinks. Like, imagine finding out like someone that you've known for years, you thought was a great friend, actually really hated you and said awful things about you. And you could know that, would you? Would you rather not know? No, I'd rather not. I mean, there's another side to this, Mark, and that's that it's about how you obviously express yourself outwardly, okay, and how you internalise things. So if you know what other people are thinking, their thoughts are not their actions. And I think the measure of someone is in their actions, not in their thoughts. So much as they might not like me, and I'm sure there's, there's plenty like that that have rubbed up the wrong way, but the point is that you can still respect someone based on their actions. Yes, it will be coloured by their thoughts, but at the end of the day, it's based on their actions. So if they've done us a good deed, if they've done us a good turn, they might not like us, but they've done the right thing. Fair point. So you take the actions, so you take the actions, I was always take the actions over the thoughts. Okay, next question is, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck? <laughs> Or a hundred duck-sized horses. One duck-sized horse. You're the second person in the row to say that. I, I think everyone else has said a hundred duck-sized horses. Do you know why? Because when I was a kid, I watched a movie, and it was called, I, I, I don't think it was uh, called Piranha, but it was, it was about piranhas, and it was about all the piranhas coming and nibbling away, and it gave me nightmares. And I would just have a vision, I would just have the vision of these hundred duck-sized horses coming and nibbling me. And nobody able to get rid of them. But the thing is, like, duck-sized horses are small, right? You could go into a room and close a door and they wouldn't be able to get in. You could stand on a table. You could easily get away from them, right? A horse-sized duck. A horse-sized duck's not going to get through a door. But it could probably smash through a doorway. You think about the size of the... the if, if a duck was the size of a horse, think about how big its beak is going to be and its feet's going to be. Like, and the thing's going to be, like, seven foot tall like towering over the top of you, that'd be terrifying. Aye, but you've only, you've only got one thing to get away from. Aye, see, I, I said this before, and there's maybe the, the entrepreneurial brain in me somewhere that thinks, if I had a hundred duck-sized horses, I could sell them. Like, because think about it, people buy like miniature pigs and stuff, don't they? Like, they're quite popular. Like, if you've got like a duck-sized horse, that people think that'd be amazing. Well, do you know what I would, do you know what I would counter that with? Imagine the size of egg that would be produced from a duck, from a horse-sized duck. You've seen how much elephant eggs go for. So have a look at first, <laughs> have a look at firstdibs.com, right? And look up elephant eggs. They're extortionate. So imagine how many eggs and the size of that thing that it would be and how rare that would be. You could also charge people to come and see it. See what I mean? This question, right? This might be a simple answer. There's not a simple answer to it, right? <laughs> I definitely need to get new questions up. There's no simple answers. I don't have so much thought. The next one, and again, this is going to be another long answer, David, from you, I'm pretty sure, right, is what piece of advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Look for the most successful person that you've got within your family, connections, friends, acquaintances, and ask them for help. So effectively, look for the best person you can have and ask them if they will help mentor you yep don't think you need to say add anything to that so if you had a time machine would you travel to the past or to the future I love history and I'm a great believer in history repeating itself because we don't learn from it and if we fail to learn from the past then we're doomed to repeat the mistakes in the future you're going to the past no sure. I'm not I'm, I'm going to go into the future really yeah okay I thought you were going to say I would go back to the past so I could go and witness some historic event or no change the past or like you I'm in a, a world where we're in a constant state of change and been going back to the flame and the constant rebirth I would be fascinated to see what the world's going to look like in 300 years time 
thing is, I think most people for this question have said the past because they don't want to know what the future holds. But I think if I was going to go into the future, I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't be like 10 or 15 years and see what I was going to be like in, or my life was going to be like in the future. I think. Oh no, I wouldn't, but that would scare me. Hundreds of years. Yeah, that would scare you. To go like 500 years into the future, just to see what the, I've just been to see what the technology is like and see what people's lives are like and what houses are like and, you know what I mean? So yeah, that'd be quite interesting, but yeah, and that's quite cool. Thanks for that. And the last question, you know, this is the TechSess podcast and TechSess is all about using technology to help enable your business to be more successful. So in your business or for what you do for customers and things, what does TechSess look like in your words? It's about using the common everyday tools that we see around us, when they're available around us in a more productive way. So one of the phrases that I often come across is, oh, I just want a brochure website. And for me, it kind of strikes home the difference between having an off-the-shelf website versus one that's designed for not just what you need, but what your users need and your customers need and your suppliers need and your partners need. And for me, a, a website and an online presence um, I mean, we used to call it a website review, but we now call it an online review. It's just encompassing many different aspects. So, for example, is there aspects that you can take, and, and COVID's brought this forward probably about three or four years in terms of people's understanding of what the web can do for them. So QR tags, we thought, had kind of come and gone. Now they're, a, they're an everyday part of our lives. Yeah. I think QR codes have had a better comeback than Adele. But so, so there's an aspect to Texas is about taking the manual tasks out of an individual's daily workload. So, for example, if someone phones up and asks for support or help or whatever, or they, they go to someone's website and they do a submission, then it could be simply asking for your location. What's your postcode? If they're asking for uh they've got information that they want to kind of get a price for something right okay well what's your budget or do you have a range and it might be that what's your time scales so it might be that you're needing it immediately it might be that you've got a, an idea you want to do it within the next four weeks or the next quarter or the next six months or you don't know or there's a dependency so we ask you, you can ask those questions people seem to think that website forms have to be really 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 simple Right, name, email, phone, message, GDPR, acceptance, and obviously maybe cookies, but with Google's recapture version three. Contact forms, in my view, help save effort further down the line. But they don't just save effort for the person receiving it. They save effort for the person sending it because they're going to get asked these questions. And yeah, we know there's a dance that sometimes happens in terms of budget. So... Well, can you build me this? Well, what's your budget? What do you think I need? Right? And there's a dance that goes on. But that dance can be brought forward if we're just a bit up front with each other and say, well, what's an early day? Right? Well, this is the early day. Right? Not based on your abilities to can spend money with me. It's just straight, okay, well, I need to know where do I put that budget? Do I need to put it in design? Do I need to put it in development? Do I need to put it in a back office? So... In terms of Texas, to answer your question directly, I would say it's about taking some of those questions that people would ask subsequently upfront and to use a website to do that. The Texas 10. One thing I always say to people is that David and the guys at Inspire, they approach websites in a way that I've not seen any other web developers approach things because most people, it's fair to say, when they think of their website, they think about what does it look like, the visuals. Oh, it looks great. Well, it might look great, but does it actually do anything for you? Does it do what you want it to do? You know, and I always say that if you want a website to look good, there's loads of people out there that will make a website look good. If you want a website to actually function and deliver results and do the things that you want it to actually do, then you need to speak to David. Because that's the difference, you know. And then it's also the way that you handle the projects, I think, which you mentioned earlier about, you know, Prince 2, project management. 
and things like that because I think a lot of web development businesses don't actually have they kind of do in their own head like they're under they know the process that they go through but there's not a structured process you know from kind of start to finish and it's just one of these things that oh well it'll get done when it gets done and you know like a year later the site's still not live or they've launched it and it's 60% of the way there and like they've got a front end page and a contact form but there's loads of missing content and things like that you know and and you just see oh you've probably seen mounds of examples of those kind of like half finished or broken websites that just have never really got to where they needed to be you know and got completed and quite often it's i was just going to add it's quite often because people obviously choose the wrong web development business in the beginning like they choose like you know the next door neighbor's kid who you know read html in 24 hours and Things I can build your website in, you know, Wix or whatever other online Squarespace or any of these online website builders and they kind of get a site, but it doesn't really do anything for them, you know. And then, of course, fast forward a few years when they decide to relook at the website, of course, they don't have access to the logins for it. They don't know where the domain's registered and there's all these other problems. So you kind of, you know, you probably end up having to pick up the pieces because actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, which is, who is it? You know, what is the, I know you work in lots of different sectors, but at what stage of a business or what stage in the lifetime of a website do you normally get involved? Like how often do you speak to people that just don't have a website and it's their first website? And what about businesses that I would expect most people you take on as clients already have a website and you're kind of getting involved? What we all tend to find is there's, and with getting the traffic that we do and I mean, a lot of our work comes from referral from other clients. So one of the things recognised quite early on is what's the cost of acquisition versus cost of retention versus cost of service versus cost of delivery, etc. And what we see is that a lot of people that come to us, they may have some kind of minimum viable proposition that's already in place. And that proposition is perhaps just simply that they're on Facebook if they're on a BTC environment. Okay. On the other side of it, it might be that they've got a LinkedIn presence and they've been doing some kind of Wix website or something like Squarespace and it's not delivered. And there's no reason why it would deliver when you consider the investment that they put into it. It's about going back to the basics. Now, I mean, here's, here's a shock. We're challenging to work with. Not everybody wants to work with us. Right? And the reason for that is because we will ask questions and we will try and provide guidance and support. But sometimes it's the first time that people have actually really sat down and thought about their business. So we'll ask clients about, right, so, oh, sorry, prospective um, clients, things like, so, who are your customers? A lot of people don't, a lot of people can't answer that. Well, the question, yeah, yeah, and what we've learned is we've learned ways to kind of elicit it out. So things like, so who was the last five people at Pagey? Okay, so who was the best, who, who paid you the most of money, money last month, etc. And you then just lead on from that. But the point then becomes that they then start to realise that it's almost like a management consultancy exercise to pull together an online presence. And it's about pulling together a whole variety of different disciplines to kind of blend them and weave them together to have an online presence that's reflective of the business, right? So the people in the business. So when we do two side reviews per year with every client, irrespective of how much they spend with us, okay? And we did that at the time when we first started because when we looked at the marketplace, people just wanted to build the website and move on to the next project. They weren't interested in the previous relationship. And that was that, that, that coming from a... Scottish and Newcastle FMCG background of, it's not about customer satisfaction, it's about customer delights. How do you delight your customers? How do you turn your clients into evangelical proponents of what you do? Okay, so having a whole team of evangelists going out there, kind of singing you top of their lungs and kind of saying, oh, right, you need to talk to such and such, etc. Then that's been great. But the consequence of not going down that approach is that you then end up having... Um, the situation where you have where people have thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a pro take it off the shelf. I can do it myself, right? Or they'll go to a graphic designer who, with the best will in the world, could create really beautiful 
aesthetically pleasing websites. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? If that's what you want. We go through a process of, I mean, something like, I don't know if it's 67 or 71% of IT projects fail because they've been poorly defined. And we look at this as a project. So we need to define it. So some people want to go through a project methodology like prototyping. We would recommend that they do that if they've got the budget, because that could be quite a time-consuming and intensive approach or an expensive resource. Or do they go down definition? And I've shared with you some examples of what we've done. And then document it. And then go to storyboard design, rather than just taking it off the shelf. And that effort, again, is not insignificant, but it's a more structured approach. And then you then get various evolutions of that. I mean, I did my master's thesis on project management and I was looking at things like the waterfall model. Then I looked at things like the bone spiral model and kind of looked at various combinations of approaches. And now you get them as like agile and scrum masters and uh, sprints. And right, it's just terminology, right? But, and they're just trying to kind of bring together the best of both worlds to kind of end up with a project um, approach that's going to be best for the client and the people delivering it and ultimately to kind of have a success on the back of it. But a lot of people don't see that if all they're doing is taking something off a shelf and putting it up or you're a graphic designer and you know that you can just go in and change the graphics. I mean, one of the major bugbears I've got is when I see a website with an email address at the top of the page. Right now, why does that? That sounds banal, right? Who cares, right? Really, David? Who cares, right? Or who cares that you've got your social media icons at the top of your website, your Twitter icon and your Facebook icon and your LinkedIn business profile icon, right? Who cares? Well, actually, I care because see if I've just knocked my pan in to try and create lots of great content on the website. And to get your ranking well, to gain, get that person finally in the website. And they then see the social icon and they click on that thing first thing. And then they never come back to the website. What was the point? You've just lost that engagement. But the other thing is about using the email address is that you've got a contact form for that. Somebody just types in an email address and you know well, Mark, that with Office 365, things can get caught up in the quarantine, right? Or they can get bounced back because someone's mistyped their email address or their inbox is full and they don't see it. I mean, we're one of the few businesses who not only use Mandrill as a, and I know it's a mouthful, it's a third-party SMTP relay, but all it really means is that the website code is held on a server, but the mail that the forums are submitted from comes from a whitelisted separate mail server and they're tracked and monitored. I mean, one of the reasons that we kind of see ourselves as a world-class business is that we're doing things that not many others are doing, right? So things like, I've got a resource every day that monitors the kind of 60 to 70,000 form-based mails that we send out every month from our clients' websites. So I've got team members whose job is to monitor and make sure that those, those emails arrive at the client's inbox and the user's inbox. Now, why is that important? Well, because they've just invested this money with me. And it's important for me to kind of reduce spam, to understand it. So we do things like honeypots on our contact forms. So it might be a field that you don't see on the surface, but the spam bot doesn't know that it's not there. So the spam bot just fills it in and we then know, ah, right, gotcha. Right, you've just filled in the form and you're a spam bot, right? So we can filter that out. But we also get bounce backs from mailboxes are full or a common one is at hotmail.com, right? So sometimes someone will mistype it and put in .com because the N is next to the M on a keyboard. Or they'll use hotmail.co.uk rather than .com. Or they'll do, G I've seen and seen one, Gmail, G-M-A-L-E .com, right? Rather than G-M-A-I-L.com, okay? So we see them. But... It doesn't matter if it's uh, someone's looking to buy a, a £1 widget or a £100,000 widget or a £300,000 widget. Every single inquiry is valid. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that our clients get sight of those kind of engagements that, that they get missed. Very much like our business as well is that 
a lot of the things that you do that really add the value and differentiate you from all the other businesses out there that do what you do are the things that customers never see. Yes. At the front end, when a customer is looking at your website and another web developer's website, or they're looking at an IT company's website and other IT companies' websites, and in our case, it's very, very difficult up front for customers to make a decision to think, oh, Inspire are different than other guys because they do all these things. Because the customer doesn't fully understand the value in having those things done and the fact that the reason that you may be more expensive than another you know, provider is because you do all these things. Of course, because they don't understand it, they can't put a value on it. Over the next seven years, they reckon that the growth rate annually for AI on websites is, is going to be about 33% year on year, um, which obviously that's quite big growth. And I think it also plays into one of the things that certainly I was my preferred option of buying things and engaging with someone is most people don't want to talk to a human. I think it's something like 70% of buyers don't actually want to have to talk to a human to find out answers to their questions. Right, like how much does it cost? How long does it take? All these things, and also, you know, I hate websites that have got a million pages that you've got to go through to find out the, the information. You know, so having some sort of like AI thing that someone can interact with and just ask it questions and it tells them the answers, and also because it isn't a human they're talking to, they're not going to get the sales pressure, or it's not a salesperson that's going to try and close their business in a non-pressure way. They can ask the question. So. How is that something that you do? A lot of people ask for that or what's your opinion on, on that on websites? It's a, it's a really good question because it's one of the things I studied uh, at university was AI. So I'm really familiar with it, whether it be as a, an expert system, which is like a, you ask it answers and it goes through a decision tree. Technology is evolving at such a pace. And I'm not just meaning developing an expert system, which has a question and answer, but it's also about machine learning. And that's where things start to really take on a different, going in a different direction. I'm not sure how far we are away from a machine learning AI, kind of from a website perspective. I still think that's quite a way away. But what is here already is shifting simple questions to using chatbots. Now, I mean, I think it was a few years ago I went into the local um, GPs and I was presented with a a stand and what looked like an iPad that had been kind of blue tacked to the stand. And it was kind of questions about what was your appointment time? And um, who was your, what was the doctor with? And then what was your date of birth? And then it was then just about registering that you were there. So fine, so you're just taking a task away from the receptionist to ask. So the receptionist can be released to the other tasks. Another one was, and this is what you were saying about websites. One of the things I'm still surprised at is that if you understand the technology that sits behind using a VoIP phone and you go and you ring a number and typically you will now be, most people don't necessarily have, use landlines at home now. They'll be using their mobiles. So there's going to be, there's another change for another, a conversation for another time. But if you ring up and the, the line's engaged, fine, you'll hang up, right? But if you get a voicemail and it says, please press one, it's such and such. It's, things are called IVRs. And it could be press one to bring up the website or press two to go to the contact form on our website. Now that technology exists right now if you know that there's a programming language that sits behind it and it's based on XML. So the tech exists, but nobody's doing it yet. And I mean, I've spoken to the providers and they're like, well, that's a good idea, but it goes nowhere. And that's the difference between being an individual as an entrepreneur versus, and, and, and I know this because I've come from a corporate background where you've got, it's like turning the Titanic, right? Or kind of to avoid the iceberg, right? It's a really difficult task to shift a mindset in an organization and to be fleet of foot, okay? Or agile, um, to borrow a phrase from earlier. But the other aspect, to go, going back to your question about do I see your eyes? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the likes of WhatsApp, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Facebook bought WhatsApp and Facebook were going to, last year or so, they delayed the commercialization of WhatsApp. And that's what's going to come. I mean, you're going to get AI bots that then ask you a question 
and the G, using the GP practice. I mean, the NHS have started doing it. I mean, I completed a survey for a PhD thesis just last week, and it was asking questions like, how comfortable would you be with an AI telling you that your condition was X versus a person telling you, right? Going through. But the thing is, the AI just goes through the same questions that the GP should or the doctor should. So actually, there should be a greater degree of consistency in terms of the questions asked and then looking at the responses and then that can then be mined and then looked at it or it can come out with an answer to see that, yeah, we recommend you go to a practice and speak to someone. Or here's now an appointment time because it's already looked up to see where the next appointment booking available times are. So things like that absolutely are coming. I mean, one of the things that I see coming is within the state agency market. I mean, we've seen Google for Jobs appear, which has been a game changer and a huge tech disruptor to the likes of Indeed, where you can now have jobs on your website that appear in the blue box on Google when people start searching for jobs. And you can just cut out the middleman or you can cut out the, the job boards. Still means you need somebody to help you write your job advert together. It needs to be accurate and it needs to be kind of almost covering the number of points. But within Google with their schema, they'll ask you, right, okay, so what's the job title? What's the type of employment? Is it full-time, part-time, per DM, et cetera? What's the salary structure? Is there a bonus? What's the experience required? What's the academic requirements? What's the, the benefits, et cetera? Right, so it breaks all this down. And by using AI, you're then in a position to say, okay, well, if these are the questions we're going to ask, then these are the potential next steps in the decision tree. So I still think the decisions tree approach is still going to be there. The difference, I think, is going to come when machine learning starts to learn the types of questions that's being asked and based on the consequential questions and asked and answers, it then starts to learn to perhaps ask some of these questions again sooner the next time somebody visits. I think, well, that's one thing I was going to say, which is, I mean, chatbots are not new on websites. Just talk about that one thing there. You know, you can program it to appear human-like to ask questions and to give answers. But where it really becomes powerful is when you add in machine learning, which is where it can take what the user said and incorporate that information into its responses and tailor it. Because I've seen the chatbot stuff, you say, well, if the, if the user, you know, if you ask the question this, if they say this, then give them this bit of information. But that's just following our pre-scripted programming. It's not tweaking it, you know, based on what that individual person says, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, in one of the aspects of the, the course that we did was looking at deconstructing a story and deconstructing that story to the point whereby we just went looked for the various different action words and various different kind of aspects to it that would then actually turn into a program. And how would you then program that accordingly? A great friend of mine who was one of our lecturers went off to work for search engine in the States and he was working in AI there, right? And he ended up at Google and then he ended up going on to work for a smaller startup, again, in the same AI space. You may want to look them up. And it's really interesting the kind of the insights that people like that can provide to us in terms of the direction that not only are we going, but, I mean, I don't see technology becoming available just now, but who knows what's just around the corner. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think AI, machine learning is going to be something that comes in, not just on the web, but just everywhere in, in life more. And I think, yeah, you know, you, you could argue that, yeah, do these things take away, you know, certain job roles and functions or do they allow, like you give the example of the GP practice, do they allow a member of staff to be more effective in doing other things uh, rather than just actually booking people in for appointments, which seems like, if you think about it, it seems like an obvious thing to do because I know, you know, certainly in the past, whenever you go to a GP practice, typically the receptionist is on the phone because they're also answering the phone and you end up standing there for like 10 minutes waiting to get booked in your appointment. In some cases, your appointment started five minutes ago and you're still not checked in. Whereas if they had the system that you've talked about, I could have been in, sat down and it could have been a much more efficient system. So that's just one example. Whenever we speak, we tend to always have these kind of discussions. So if other people have found it as interesting as probably we both have, then uh, hopefully people have got some insights out of it. And not just to do with technology and websites and stuff, but just business and life and stuff in general.
and, and obviously they're getting to know a little bit more about you and what you do. So the final thing I was going to ask you is what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you or get in touch with Inspire? How, what's the best way for people to do that? Okay. So to get in touch with Inspire would be to reach out via our website at the bottom of every page on our website you won't be surprised to know as a contact form so if you're looking to get in touch with the business if you're looking to get in touch with me then it's david at inspired.scot and you can we've got social presence across facebook and on google my business so if you just search for inspired digital then we've got offices across nine parts of scotland cool and we'll make sure that we include your links and stuff and we'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile as well in the show notes so people can easily find you there so thanks very much Mark. thanks very much David and actually uh cheers Texas is an M3 Networks podcast find out more at m3networks.co.uk 